0: I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including one generation.
1: The freedom of a people to choose its leaders is the root of liberty. Keep alive. This experiment in liberty. Liberty, in case you've forgotten, is the soul's right to breathe. Government
2: should be very minimal in protecting liberty. Peace cannot be purchased at the cost of liberty. The sturdy ground of liberty. Liberty
3: once lost is lost forever. Fight
2: for their liberty and for our security. Guarantees individual liberty. This great republic born alone in liberty. 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 Liberty.
0: Liberty. Just how much do you want liberty?
2: This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. Cutting through the double talk, taking on the topics, going after what the politicians really mean, and making it all clear. For your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. From friends to frenemies to enemies, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. Welcome back in to Liberty Nation. After a week that saw the release of incredible comments about President Trump from his one-time senior advisor, we will examine the rise and fall. Of Steve Bannon. Can Democrats win control of the House and or the Senate in this year's midterm elections? We will focus on the battle for the soul of the Republican Party between moderates and conservatives still ongoing. As we're joined by a conservative challenger to the moderate GOP incumbent in a highly targeted swing district in Virginia, and we'll analyze whether the Democrats' singular focus on attacking Donald Trump will be enough for them to win in November. And the drug war is back. LibertyNation.com Legal Affairs Editor Scott Cosenza will join us to discuss Jeff Sessions' decision to reassert federal authority on marijuana.
1: Say what! Say what! Say what! One more time!
2: We start with Say What, where we unveil some of the most wacky, astonishing, and damnable things uttered by politicians and the chattering class. And the comments of Steve Bannon released this week would easily qualify as all three. What to make of this man who most supporters of Donald Trump once praised but now believe to be a traitor and or a useful idiot for the forces aligned against the president? Of course, there's another possibility that Trump was right when he said Steve Bannon has lost his mind. Indeed, the former senior advisor to the president has ignited a firestorm on the right with his jaw-dropping statements about Trump and his family in excerpts of a new book by sensationalist author Michael Wolff, Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House. Among other things, Bannon called the meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and a Russian woman promising dirt on Hillary Clinton treasonous and said he was certain the candidate knew all about the meeting and likely met with the Russian informant as well, even though that meeting occurred before Bannon was hired by the campaign. Bannon further claims that Trump and first lady Melania Trump did not even want to win the election. So one is left to conclude that Trump's prolific and now legendary last two weeks of furious campaigning was uh, just a clever smokescreen. So how did the president respond? With a predictably blistering statement condemning Bannon and minimizing his role in the Trump campaign and administration. And after all this broke, the most Bannon would say about these comments in the book was a generic statement of support for Trump, who came back with a sarcastic response. The President United States is a great man. You know, I support him day in and day out, whether going through the country, given the Trump miracle speech or on the show or on the website. So I don't think you have to worry about that.
1: I don't know. really called me a great man last night. So, you know, he obviously changed his tune pretty quick.
2: Now, it's hard to determine which is more incredible. The comments themselves by Bannon the fact that he would even make himself available to such a well-known purveyor of sensational journalism, or that he did this while knowing for certain that his assertions would re-energize the howling, bloodthirsty mobs out to terminate the Trump presidency by any means which avail themselves. So the double-minded Bannon claims to support Trump at every turn on one side of his mouth, while leaking and defaming not just the president, but his family on the other. What exactly did Bannon think would happen when he decided to go tell-all? Well, here's what he's wrought. Even louder calls for extending the Mueller probe the thus far fruitless Russia collusion investigation where the only news has been processed crimes unrelated to the Trump campaign. Listen to former Justice Department official Matthew
0: Miller on MSNBC. If you're Bob Mueller and his team and you look at this book and you see things like Steve Bannon saying the meeting in Trump Tower, they almost certainly don't. It's almost certain that Don Jr. took Natalia Veselnitskaya upstairs to meet with Donald Trump Sr. Whether that actually happened or not, you know that, that he's going to want to talk to Steve Bannon about that. When you right. see Mark Carollo, the president's, for, or the president's legal team's former spokesman, saying he believes that that statement that they crafted on board Air Force One denying the meeting was obstruction of justice, that's someone that, that Bob Mueller's team is going to want to talk to. You have people on the president's team talking about each other, um, disparaging each other, disparaging the president. Uh, they, cannot, you know, they clearly are not all pulling in the same direction. All of this begs
2: many questions. Is this consistent with Bannon's behavior in the past? Well, in a word, yes. Shortly after he was booted out of the White House, remember, Bannon granted an interview to the left-wing American prospect of all places, in which he was sharply critical of Trump's approach to North Korea. And more importantly... It was an open secret around Washington that Bannon was removed from the administration because he was privately unmasked as a primary source of the leaks that were so frequent in the early days of the administration. You remember that, right? And honestly, folks, with friends like this, who needs the left? Enemies. Who needs them? was Bannon misquoted or taken out of context in the book? Well, if that was true, given the specter of an immediate severing of his relationship with the most powerful man in the world, a man who never fails to respond to a slight, Bannon would have immediately disavowed or walked back his statements, but he did not. Indeed, Dana Lash, conservative activist and host of The Dana Show here on Radio America, says spilling dirt, real or speculative or concocted, to this controversial author Michael Wolff is actually typical of Bannon's pattern of double-minded behavior.
1: I know a lot of people are talking about whether or not they can trust Michael Wolf and uh, this guy seems to be untrustworthy and unethical. Steve Bannon trusted him enough to go and blab to him. Steve Bannon trusted him enough to let him in the inner sanctum and encourage other people within the Trump administration to talk to this guy. Steve Bannon claims to be a warrior against the media, but this is a guy who repeatedly has gone to the mainstream media to leak stories and to blab about the administration in an effort to undermine the president's foreign policy decisions.
2: So are those who've worked with Bannon, not counting those who are employees of Breitbart News, supportive of him or surprised by his statements? In a word, no. Almost universally, the comments about Bannon focus on the same thing, that he's all about Steve Bannon. Again, Dana Lash says she wasn't even surprised at what Bannon did.
1: He's an opportunist. This is an individual who likes to take credit for other people's success. He glommed on to Sarah Palin in the early days of her campaign. He glommed on to Andrew Breitbart. He glommed on to Ted Cruz, and he did the same thing with President Trump. He catches people as they're ascending or after they've already ascended and then tries to claim credit for all of their accomplishments. Let's examine
2: that last claim when it comes to Donald Trump. The bombastic billionaire announced his candidacy in June of 2015. By the time Bannon joined the campaign 14 months later, Trump had already shaken up the political world, vanquished 16 Republican rivals and won the GOP nomination. That means Bannon was with Trump for just the last two and a half months of the campaign and there was no major change of message or strategy. Trump carried on as he had before and won. Thus, this widespread notion that Bannon was the power behind the throne or Trump's kingmaker is little more than fiction. Trump won because of Trump, period, full stop. Bannon, of course, had already put one foot in the grave with his his spectacularly misguided championing, Of accused pedophile Roy Moore in the Alabama Senate race, nevertheless, Bannon vowed to carry on, promising to oppose virtually every Republican incumbent running for re-election this year and prop up populist primary challengers. So, of course, Mitch McConnell and the GOP establishment are gleeful about all this. McConnell actually said he'd like to associate himself with what the president had to say about Steve Bannon. The Breitbart chairman was seen, let's be honest, as a dangerous, out of control firebrand who threatens the GOP's razor thin majority in the Senate and even their more comfortable hold on the House. Let's not mince words here. Bannon is toast after rising to the heights of power, sitting at the foot of the throne he has now thrown away the one chance he'll ever get to actually affect national policy. And the hardest cut of all may be that his funding at Breitbart, which has grown into a media giant, is likely to dry up. The Wall Street Journal and other places already reporting that the wealthy owners of Breitbart, the Mercer family, are fixing to cut him loose. After all, With Trump supporters forced to choose between the most powerful man in the world, a game-changing president they were so thrilled to elect, who's already fulfilled many of the bold promises he made during the campaign, and a guy who rode the wave into the White House before imploding and turning on the man who put him there, I mean, who do you think they will choose? Steve Bannon, for whatever reason, had a death wish, a self-destruct mechanism that has now reduced him to nothing more than a coulda, woulda, shoulda historical footnote. Quick break, and then we'll be back to talk to Shaq Hill, the conservative challenger to establishment Republican Barbara Comstock in the critical swing district in Virginia just across the river from D.C. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. What we have heard here today has been a political spectacle.
1: We elect these guys to run the country. They're just not doing their job.
2: This is Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. As the Republican Party prepares to defend their majorities in the House and Senate in the midterm elections later this year, the GOP has yet to sort out the radical differences within their own party. And in a highly targeted swing district in Virginia, just across the Potomac River from Washington, establishment incumbent Barbara Comstock is trying to fend off a challenge, uh, not just from the Democrats, but from a conservative challenger in the Republican primary, Shaq Hill, who joins us now. Hey, Shaq.
3: Pleased to be here. Happy New Year.
2: Are she and you a microcosm of the larger fight between establishment Republicans and conservatives across the land?
3: We are definitely a microcosm of this fight. You know, the brand of the Republican Party is greatly tainted. It's tainted with one part of our of our party that's looking for larger government solutions and another part that's looking for individual liberties and freedoms and what's so wrong with barbara well she promised that she was going to be a reaganite to cut our taxes to secure our borders to to repeal and replace obamacare and yet when she became a member of congress She voted exactly opposite of all of those. She has broken her promises. She voted with every single Democrat to keep Obamacare in place. She voted with every single Democrat to use our taxpayer dollars to pay for transgender surgeries in the United States military. She's voted against uh, Donald Trump's budget. And when you look at her campaign promises to what she's doing, even the Heritage Foundation ranks Barbara In the bottom 17% of all Republicans in the nation, ruining the Republican brand and causing this establishment versus um, versus more liberty-minded Republicans coming forward.
2: Shaq, you send out the best, most informative emails of almost any candidate I've ever seen. In one of those emails, you reveal that Barbara Comstock actually has a lower rating from Conservative Review than Maxine Waters. Is that really true?
3: It is really true, Tim, and it's sad and disappointing. Uh, radio talk show host Mark Levin points to the conservative review scorecard as one of the, his best scorecards, and Barbara Comstock is a 25% score. And Maxine Waters, the liberal from California, is a 26. And Barbara's score puts her in the bottom 25 Republicans in the nation. And this is another reason why she's alienated her base and she's going to lose in the conservative 10th congressional district here in Northern Virginia.
2: While Barbara Comstock has become a very public crusader for cracking down on sexual harassment in Congress, she's actually been sitting on the committee that controlled the secret slush fund making payouts of taxpayer money to settle sexual harassment claims against members of Congress. This is a real doozy.
3: This just goes to show how deeply embedded she is in the establishment and the swamp. The Office of Compliance strokes the the checks that hands the money to the sexual harassment victims. It's always sad when this occurs, but they cannot do this without permission from the Congress. There is a congressional committee, which is called the Committee on House Administration, and that committee has six Republicans and three Democrats, and Barbara Comstock sits on that committee. She's been there ever since day one of her term in Congress. And unfortunately for us, the chairman of that very committee has decided to resign from the Congress, and we have called on Barbara Comstock to resign as well. She is letting down the sexual harassment victims by enabling – the predators to remain unnamed
2: Barbara Comstock is a clever politician she sees that Trump is unpopular in her district so she tries to focus on bipartisan issues like sexual harassment and traffic and saving animals so how can you a boldly pro-Trump candidate expect to win in a district where Trump is so unpopular the
3: president is really showing us that his policies are truly making America great again with this tax cut. And don't forget, Barbara voted against his budget in October one of the few Republicans to do that. But with this tax cut, with the economy moving forward, kitchen economics is really going to play a big part in our primary, which is June 12th. So what we're going to discover is that people, is that this election, Tim, is not going to be are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? This election is are you pro-President Trump or anti-President Trump? And of everybody running for this seat, I'm the only pro-President Trump candidate, and because of that, I will win the primary and I will go on to win the seat and help move President Trump's agenda forward.
2: Good luck to you, Shaq.
3: Well, thank you very much. You can Everybody can visit ShaqHill.com to learn more about me, and keep up the good work, Tim.
2: S-H-A-K-H-I-L-L.com. Shaq Hill, GOP challenger to Barbara Comstock in Virginia's critical 10th District. So what issues will be most on the minds of voters when they go to the polls in this year's midterm elections? Trump or the economy? We'll break it all down for you when we return. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner.
1: What we have here today has been a political spectacle we elect these guys to run the country they're just not doing a job this is liberty nation with tim donner well it would
2: seem to be an obvious answer to a question that should never have to be asked can democrats actually take control of the house and or senate in this new year of 2018 if they have no agenda beyond virulent opposition to every accomplishment and policy of President Trump? This is not a rhetorical question, one that answers itself, though it should be. I mean, if all a political party has to offer is that it's not the other party and is violently opposed to the disgusting, racist, sexist, fascist, whatever chief executive... There's little in the way of policy prescriptions for voters to consider. But in the age of Donald Trump, it could be enough. Consider that neither Virginia's Ralph Northam nor Alabama's Doug Jones, the two big Democratic winners in recent elections, were exactly spellbinding candidates. I mean, neither offered much beyond the standard age-old Democratic talking points. But what they really provided as virtual placeholder candidates was for Democrats to turn out in record numbers for not the candidate himself, but the opportunity to vote against Trump. It's almost as if many Democrats in those two states felt guilty for not voting in 2016, even though Hillary Clinton won Virginia handily and Trump romped in Alabama. Now, when Democrats rolled out their long-since-forgotten policy agenda entitled A Better Deal last fall, their singular attempt to actually advance some ideas of their own, it hit like a lead balloon and was quickly relegated to an historical footnote. It was a naked attempt to compensate for their neglect of working-class voters in the 2016 election, And it contained about as much legitimate material as Al Capone's vault. But if the Democrats really intend to put forward some sort of coherent agenda, we've got hints of what it will be. Just what they already tried to do with that better deal thing economic populism. Here's former DNC chair Howard Dean on CNN.
1: Off your elections for Congress, your message is I'm not the president. That's all you need. Now we're going to have more of that than the message I would hope we're going to Actually, I hope we adopt some of the economic populism that Trump claimed that he was going to do. Uh
2: Aha. Economic populism trying to win back those previously Democratic working class voters behind the previously impenetrable blue wall that was supposed to be the firewall for Hillary Clinton, including Michigan where Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Dingell echoed the same theme about economic populism.
1: I think if the election were held today, there are a lot of people that weren't engaged last year that are engaged. But it's a long time between now and next November. And I don't think the issues are going to be about the president. I think they are going to be about the same issues I predicted to everybody two years ago when I said Donald Trump could become president. Their economic issues, their jobs, their pensions, their trade deals. If that's true,
2: then the Democrats are in trouble because they don't own those issues now. Trump does. But if you believe those voter preference polls that show a generic congressional Democrat candidate defeating his Republican counterpart by about a dozen points, the Democrats' lack of a specific agenda appears not to matter to the mass of voters Will it be enough for Democrats to simply vow to oppose this president at every turn and count on the half of the country that hates Trump to be energized enough to show up and vote for them, the Democrats? Or will the Democrats decide that working with Trump on a bipartisan issue like infrastructure is the better bet? On one hand, that would allow them to promote the idea that they will work constructively even with a despised president of the opposing party when there's any semblance of common ground. But while that strategy might appeal to independent voters and traditional Democrats, it also runs the risk of inflaming and suppressing turnout among their current electoral base, the left-wing resistance. Now, clearly... The Democrats are counting on much higher turnout than usual for midterm elections to negate any fallout from their lack of a discernible agenda. And the polls so far have done nothing to dissuade them from a strictly anti-Trump position. And Howard Dean makes a noteworthy point, predicting the Democrats will win not because of traditional Democrats, but because of younger activists.
1: It's going to happen probably because the field organization is actually built by the people who vote for us, who are not actually necessarily Democrats. I mean, we won Virginia. The DNC did a good job in Virginia, but we won Virginia because of groups like Run for Something and Indivisible and Color of Change and Voto Latino. And so the question is, how do you coordinate all these groups because these kids don't believe in institutions, but they're unbelievably powerful.
2: But there is still the matter of the economy. You remember when Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush in 1992? He did it by following the now immortalized strategy. It's the economy, stupid. In that case, Clinton used that maxim in the negative Successfully hammering Bush for an ongoing recession. But 2018 stands to be the opposite, as Republicans seem likely to tout improving economic growth and better employment numbers to appeal to voters' self-interest. Absent a still-possible reversal of the many positive economic trends we've witnessed since the early spring of 2017, not to mention the real possibility of more good news resulting from the GOP tax reform bill. Would enough voters decide to vote against their own economic interests in order to send a message to Donald Trump and overthrow GOP control of Congress? Well, Republican National Committee Chair Ronald McDaniel thinks not.
1: We are delivering on promises that we made. We have an accomplishment column that is very large, and the Democrats have nothing to run on. They've done nothing this year.
2: So the $64,000 question as we enter this new year is whether this year's elections will be more a referendum on Trump or more a referendum on the economy. And while much is likely to happen, certainly will, between now and November when voters go to the polls, it stands to reason that voters will be left with a stark choice. Vote for the Republican if the economy is the most important issue to you. Or for the Democrat if you are so appalled at President Trump that an improving economy becomes strictly a secondary issue for you. We will take a quick break and then come back with Jeff Sessions declaring a reboot of the federal drug war, promising to reassert federal authority on the use of marijuana. We'll be joined by LibertyNation.com Legal Affairs Editor Scott Cosenza for Talkin' Liberty. Liberty Nation with Tim Donner. And now... Constitutional lawyer and LibertyNation.com legal affairs correspondent and editor Scott Cosenza to discuss rebooting of the drug war by Jeff Sessions. Hello, Scott. Hi, Tim. Well, this is uh, quite a switch from what we might have expected from the president himself, though not necessarily from Jeff Sessions, who says now that he will reinvigorate federal authority in asserting control over... States who have individually by themselves passed marijuana laws that allow everything from legalization of medicinal uh, marijuana for medical purposes uh, to uh, recreational use to sale and recreational use. So this is quite the showdown uh, we've got coming, it seems, between the federal government where and federal law still prohibits uh, marijuana even possession of it, and all these states that are now like a
0: tsunami starting to legalize pot. As near as I can make it out, Tim, this is the first 100 percent confirmed total violation of uh, uh, going back on a campaign promise that Donald Trump has done. During the campaign, Donald Trump said in Colorado, of all places, where marijuana is legal for recreational and medicinal purposes, that in terms of marijuana and legalization, I think that should be a state issue state by state. Can't be a whole lot more clear than that. Now, Sessions, as you mentioned, you know, it's no surprise that <laughs> that it, he has been kind of, um, in the view of many of us, sort of almost unhinged on marijuana. He has likened its dangers to that of heroin. He's said that good people don't smoke marijuana and basically poo-pooed any, even the most sort of rudimentary health benefits that, you know, almost... Are there any Americans who believe that, you know, wasting disease patients, for instance, shouldn't be allowed access to to marijuana? Well, yes, uh, and that person is Jeff Sessions. Um, So the other thing that we have is that on January 1, 30 more million Americans join the ranks of Americans who can legally buy uh, marijuana for recreational purposes, to say nothing of medical purposes in California. And now we have the federal government saying, in essence... Put the brakes on all of that, and we're going to go forward and and enforce federal law. And as I wrote about on LibertyNation.com, federal law includes uh, life sentences for distribution and cultivation at levels which are fairly common in states where these are legal. Right? I mean, these are. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weed being sold in Washington and Oregon and in, in Colorado, California, Nevada, etc., and And those levels put them right up at the life sentence uh, level and even the death penalty for extremely high levels of uh, cultivation and distribution. So. It boggles the mind um, where they think this is going to lead. Uh, I, I can't understand the movement. I, I understand that Mr. Sessions is, is vehemently opposed to any kind of lessening of the prohibitions on marijuana, but that Trump would allow him to, to take this measure in the face of all the you know, all the movement is going in one direction, except for it seems like from one man, and that's Jeff Sessions. Now, might it, might it, might it not be possible, Scott, that what Jeff Sessions is doing here
2: is simply – uh, wanting to reserve his rights as the Attorney General and as the head of the Department of Justice, uh, his rights to assert some control without necessarily clashing with these various
0: states. Uh, state governments? I mean, well, let's take a little bit of a dive, Tim, in, 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 into the nitty gritty as to what's going on here. So in 2013, faced with the prospect of a number of states uh, legalizing access for patients for marijuana, and legalizing some recreational and by the way, often done not with the help of state-level politicians, but through direct democracy, where citizens were tired of inaction by their politicians and said, you know, stop arresting our patients. And so faced with that, the federal government had a real challenge are they going to go ahead and 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 you know lock up these poor cancer patients basically and and charge them with federal crimes and the people who are going to give them their uh, or sell them their weed or are they going to try to figure out a workaround to leave them alone and so they came up with this thing called the cole memorandum it was was a 2013 memo issued by uh, a high level justice department official and it basically directed uh, so u.s attorneys there are over a hundred U.S. attorneys in this country, and they control federal prosecutions in that er- in, in in your local area. Okay, they're the people who are actually the deciders as to whether or not a, a federal criminal charge gets brought or not. And this was a memo directed to them, and it said, "Here's the situation: with limited availability for prosecution of crime, and with the goal of harm reduction, basically you should only prosecute marijuana crimes if they fall under these certain steps, and and basically leave." people who are operating legally under state law alone. Now, it didn't explicitly say that you can't prosecute those people. It just gave the guidance as to how the resources of the offices should be used. And if they were used under the rubric set in that memorandum, then you'd have zero or near zero prosecutions of people acting legally under state law. And that was a convenient solution through this this weedy uh, existence that we have with this tension between federal and state laws at odds in this area. Sessions always had the power to direct a certain prosecution if he wanted to in contravention of this memoranda. It's not a law. It's it's internal policy for the Justice right. Department as to how they directed their U.S. attorneys to act. So I don't think that your statement is right or your, or, or, or your question. The answer to your question is, no, that's not what Sessions is doing, because he always had the power to enact a prosecution consistent with the federal law, which... Let's remind everybody, federal law prohibits even simple possession of marijuana to say nothing of setting up a store or a distribution point or a farm. You can't have a joint. That's against federal law. You could be locked up and sent to federal prison for having one joint. The possible a positive
2: effect from this is that it might well push this issue quicker to the Supreme Court, which we've said all along and we've discussed in this segment many times, that ultimately the Supreme Court is going to have to settle the conflict between federal law and state laws in a test of the Tenth Amendment. It will be uh, probably a landmark ruling, uh, I would think. Uh, But it seems to me, Scott, just taking a step back and looking at this issue for people that aren't familiar with it or follow it in terms of the the federal war on drugs, it reminds me a lot of the war on poverty in the sense that both of them have laudable goals. Uh, Reduction of poverty on the one hand, reduction of drug use among vulnerable youth on the other hand. Uh, However, it also demonstrates the the utter failure of the war on drugs where uh, drugs are now more widely available and cheaper and stronger than they ever have been. Uh, since the war on drugs began over 40 years ago, it, it, the the federal government is entirely ineffective at trying to affect abstract goals like reducing poverty, like reducing drug use. Uh, the only thing that that the federal government is good at is in concrete goals like we want to build this road in this location. We want to add or subtract this land here or there. But when it comes to these abstract goals, the 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 aims of it may be good. But have we not seen from this war on drugs and from our experience with prohibition of liquor going all the way back to the 1900, early 1900s, that
0: this stuff just doesn't work. You know, you you talk about the the war on poverty and the war on drugs uh, with their similarities. They also have some other similarities, which you didn't mention, which is that how they're sold to the public is not exactly how they're conceived. And uh, I think that there are some credible arguments that the war on poverty uh, was a votes gathering endeavor uh, by certain politicians and Mm -hmm. the war on drugs was a was a protectionist measure and a vote right. gathering measure so the idea that it was all about like genuine concern especially in the case of marijuana I think that, that history shows us that that's actually not that not accurate and in fact the the true uh, not to get too conspiratorial but that the, the the true nature of the proposed uh, prohibition and the prohibitionists early on uh, were not were not good and let me just go back to the first point you made in your in, in your uh, response which was talking about the Supreme Court weighing and I actually think Tim that uh, the solution for this problem lies in the legislature, and it's Congress's failure to act. And I and I see a, a number of uh, uh, congressmen and uh, discussing the Sessions memo uh, revocation and their outrage about it. Well, let's see those full legalization proposals be introduced into the legislative body in which you sit, uh, congressmen and women. In other words, in other words, what you're saying is, uh, let's have the legislature reverse federal law. Yes. Or make an exception for in the federal law for people acting in, you know, who are acting legally under state law. There are many legislative right. uh, c- creative solutions that instead of yelling about Jeff, I mean, honestly, even though I think that Jeff Sessions actions uh, are against liberty and will do violence to our neighbors, they are consistent with federal law. I mean, federal law does outlaw these things. And if you're a congressman and you don't like it, why don't you introduce a change to that law instead of yelling at Jeff Sessions?
2: Maybe you can explain to me why, when we're in the midst of a heroin epidemic in this country, that the attorney general would choose to emphasize a drug that's widely considered to be the least damaging when we have heroin and oxycodone and other similar opioids destroying
0: people's lives. Let's be clear. Some huge percentage of those deaths are absolutely preventable, and the only reason why they take place is because of the prohibition that disallows Truth and labeling like we have with alcohol and, in fact, in marijuana in places where it's legal at the state level. If you go to a marijuana dispensary in Nevada and you pick up a package of marijuana cookies or soda or the butt itself, it'll tell you the percentage of THC that's available there. The same would be true with a legal market for heroin. As ridiculous as that may sound to some people, if it listed the percentage of heroin and fentanyl involved, people could make informed choices and A a significant reduction in those overdose deaths uh, would be present. So I don't understand it. This prohibitionist mentality, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, we've already proven through American history where we amended the Constitution and then
2: amended it back to reverse the previous amendment that prohibition simply does not work. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Tim. And thank you for joining us. That's it for today. A reminder, though, that the podcast of this radio program, Liberty Nation Radio, as well as our own podcast at Liberty Nation, The Uprising, are available to you at libertynation.com, where truth is making a comeback. Also available on fine podcast providers everywhere. We will be back at you next week. Till then, This is Tim Donner saying, stand up for liberty. And we'll see you next time on Liberty Nation.
1: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly
2: beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
1: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
2: (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.